Welcome to another episode of Technicolor Jesus, where we talk movies and pop culture with an eye for pastors, preachers, and Sunday school teachers. Today, I'm shirtless and ready to spike some volleyballs. I really Today, hope that's not true. No, it's totally true. You all see me right now on Google FaceTime. I am totally shirtless. Today, we celebrate the high watermark of American patriotic cinema with speed and jets and dress whites and riding a motorcycle without a helmet. And the most patriotic guest I know from our nation's capital. Today, we receive the wisdom of Tony Scott's 1986 movie, Top Gun. I'm Adam, and I teach preaching and worship at Andover Newton Theological School in Boston. And I'm Matt, and I'm the pastor here at Amherst Presbyterian Church in the beautiful Blue Ridge Mountains of Virginia. And if you're new to the show, here's how it works. We take turns picking movies that are supposed to be relevant to our work as ministers, and we try to make our case. In our first segment today, Justification by Faith, we discuss why Top Gun matters for the work of the church. In our second segment, Preaching to the Choir, we're going to offer up some specific ideas for what you might do with Top Gun for the lectionary week ahead, which will be year C, July 10th, the 15th Sunday of Ordinary Time. And finally, we'll offer up some postludes, preacher thoughts from each of us on something else we're watching or following. But before we go too far down the line, we want to introduce our special wing person, wing woman. <laughs> our, our guest for today's show is Becca Messman. Becca is a pastor at Trinity Presbyterian Church in Herndon, Virginia. She writes regularly for the Presbyterian Outlook and is among the better pastors I know. She has pulled herself away from the Presbyterian General Assembly Twitter feed to talk with us today. Last week, Becca ordered us to watch Top Gun, and so we've done it and now we are going to discuss why this movie matters for the church thanks for being here becca thank you guys this is one of the greatest moments of my life both personally and professionally thanks for letting me buzz the tower that's one of my first but definitely not the last top gun quotes <laughs> so becca i have a few lists for you the first one is this top gun days of thunder crimson tide enemy of the state man on fire these are all Tony Scott movies I can't help but watch if they come on TV. The second list is this. Mike Lowry, Mike Lowry, Cold Trickle, Axel Foley, Cameron Poe, <laughs> Nick Broadshaw, Call Sign Goose, and Mike Lowry again. <laughs> These are my favorite Jerry Bruckheimer characters. Here's another list. Top Gun, Mission Impossible 2, Oblivion, and Edge of Tomorrow. These are my favorite moments when Tom Cruise rides a motorcycle. So you have Tony Scott, you have Jerry Bruckheimer, and you have Tom Cruise teaming up in Top Gun, a movie that everyone expected to flop. And they begin to usher in a whole new era of this action genre, one where a five foot two man can save the world or the country or the universe. And it all sort of starts with Top Gun. It's the ur-source of the hyper-masculine, pro-America, handsome, and ruggedly individual action flick. It is, in some ways, our answer to Britain's James Bond. Our heroes are not suave, but they are charming. They're not smooth, but reckless. Not tailored, but rugged. So tuxedos get exchanged for bomber jackets. Aston Martins are exchanged for Harley Davidsons. So, Becca, in the wake of Independence Day, as we think about Top Gun, the church, the lectionary, and our swirling political climate, why watch Top Gun? 
What does Top Gun have to say for those of us who care about the church? So I love this movie. I love it like I love a box of old mixtapes. It's useless. <laughs> but it is dripping with cheesy romance and young male bravado. Well, I'm glad that and you it, note this up, up front, too, because is, I was watching this last night thinking, uh, <laughs> I don't remember this being as cheesy as it is. But it is deliciously nostalgic, isn't it? Yeah. So I remember this movie is just like it was my memory was lying to me. I had conflated, it, I think, with another kind of thread of mid 80s action blockbuster, which is all made out of music videos. So in my memory, <laughs> Top Gun is just it's just music video montage stitched together after one after the other, kind of like Rocky Four. But actually, it's it's not. I was a little surprised that it had as much like dialogue in it as I. Yeah, I, I love that it's brilliantly quotable. So anybody who watched movies in the 80s, they can recall something from Top Gun. And when something is familiar like that, so culturally ingrained, these quotes can feel downright liturgical. So let's practice. If I said, I feel the need, you would say, the, the need, need for, for speed. speed. <laughs> I, and I think that it might be an honest and playful way of reminding people that biblical folks had their quotes and their sayings from childhood too, just like we do. Uh, maybe it's a stretch, but I think biblical folks would break out into song with an agenda, just like what might happen if, we, if someone were to play You've Lost That Love and Feeling at the right time at a bar. I mean, that's not the perfect, if that's not the perfect unlikely way to teach the canticles in the New Testament, I don't know what is. <laughs> and <laughs> maybe it's a stretch, but I've actually, I have referenced this movie in a sermon. I was preaching about Sabbath, and I used the line, I'll hit the brakes, you'll fly right by. I was making the case that in most aspects of our lives, when we hit the brakes, the stuff that we worry about will fly right by. But like the movie itself, it may seem shallow, but dang, it is so memorable. And I think there's some, there's some theological, pastoral heft in this movie when it comes to talking about death, how we deal with death. I mean, there's all these totally weird responses to the death of the beloved goose, Nick Bradshaw. There's Viper who says, you got to let him go. Which is it, like the worst pastoral advice right. in the movie. I mean, it is it awful. Was, maybe it was two hours into the guy's grieving process, <laughs> and Mav is still in his underwear. I mean, that's not appropriate. And then there's Charlie, who's Mav's instructor-turned-girlfriend, who starts off really comforting. I'm here to help. But then she quickly moves into, you didn't learn anything, did you? Except to quit. Ouch, that burns like a like a F-14 jet engine. <laughs> and then there's these moments of, of beautiful, rare tenderness where you've got Goose's grief-stricken wife, this Meg Ryan, first time we really meet her in film, and she encourages Mav to fly again. He would have done it. He would have hated it, but he would have flown without you. So I think about that, and I wonder if this movie might mesh well with 
processing how people deal with death. Like maybe the, the way that Job's friends dealt with all of his suffering. A lot of them just gave pat responses from their culture and they weren't really able to name what Job had lost. Uh, but they were really at their best when they just sat there with him. Which is which is what the uh, the the most uh, the best pastoral approach in the movie is Goose's kid who doesn't say anything. Right, <laughs> <laughs> he's just sitting there in the shade. It's so shady. All the shades are drawn, um, and that that juxtaposed with the rest of the movie, it just plays with confidence. Where do we place our confidence? Who is the best? What it, what makes us the best? Um, I, it reminds me of all of the disciples just swaggering around Jesus. And they were always arguing among themselves about who was the greatest. And I think I'd make the case that swagger about who is the best is like 90% of the dialogue of this whole film. <laughs> <laughs> and we, we like to lampoon the disciples. But I mean, really... They're not that different from these uh, these snot-nosed jockeys in Top Gun who just want to get their name written on the wall. I mean, I imagine, like, Goose says, no, no, there's two L's in Goose, boys. I mean, it's like Philip saying, no, no, there's two L's in Philip, Jesus. <laughs> so, so Matt, you, you, you noted that earlier you had had uh, all sorts of memories of this movie that proved to be false. As you approached it again almost for the first time as a minister as um as someone who is you know a lover of film what what were some of the thoughts that uh and ideas that came to you well so i, I love becca's idea about the um just using this for its sheer familiarity and the the quotability of it and you know it's one of those films that yeah becomes part of the cultural lexicon i'm sitting here like so for me and like my, especially like college age friends, the, the, the lexicon that we used was just Simpsons quotes, right? <laughs> and so it wasn't Top Gun. It was just all like seasons one through six or seven or so of The Simpsons. And I'm sitting here fantasizing about I bet like, my Wookiee. Right. Like the fantasy congregation, which is just people who are fully versed in quotes from the first eight seasons of The Simpsons and the amount of like cultural reference that we could use in our conversation, which is, I think, a kind of interesting way of thinking about some of what she's getting at with the the familiarity for Jesus's contemporaries, especially in the New Testament, of the language of, of the law and the language of Jewish practice and tradition in the ways that those things become memes almost. Well, um, and it's interesting too, Matt. I mean, Ministers who have gone through seminary have a specific set of vocabulary, too, that also gets turned almost like The Simpsons would or Top Gun would, too, right? So you get into these, like, little moments of of total nerddom where, like, if you can drop super lapsarianism into a conversation along with other ministers, they'll laugh because they recognize that there's this sort of common referent. Isn't Uh, that the whole reason that we do this podcast, Adam? More or less. Um, But... I think there's uh, room to talk about how it's not just that those references are familiar, it's that we can make meaning pretty easily in a number of different directions. Oh, yeah, absolutely. Them, right? Right. They become shorthand. Uh, and I think that's really helpful. But I, I don't, this movie did not hold up well for me. Um, <laughs> I, I, I'm not sure it held up well in the first place, but it, 
it wasn't a huge part of my childhood. Maybe that's why I just wasn't remembering it very well. And I, I, I'm going to push back a little bit on the concept of theological heft, I think is Becca's language <laughs> in Top Gun. <laughs> I mean, I, 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 I love the ways that you're thinking about, thinking about it. And I, I think we definitely want to talk about the role of like ego in this movie. I mean, I think there's ways you could certainly use it in pastoral context, but just as like, Adam, you asked how I experienced it as someone who, I guess, in theory cares about film. And I experienced it as like, oh, why did they make this? This is just, it's just bad. Um, which doesn't mean that it's not entertaining, but um, I don't know. I struggled a little bit. Uh, but I, I, I guess I, I would bend us back towards ego. I mean, this movie is that, um, as Becca already named, this kind of constant clash of ego and this constant clash of masculine pride and arrogance and i found that very resonant to congregational and church and parish life whether it's uh egos competing inside a church context or kind of more what resonated for me was like the the ego of getting up to preach on sunday morning and the number of pastors probably myself included and preachers myself included who can't help but get sucked into the the ego feedback of that and wanting to get up on Sunday and you know and, and push it to the limit and you know and get into the danger zone of it or whatever that is of like doing the doing the you thing. You can tell Matt that, doesn't at, actually at, at have the uh, you don't actually have the uh, the lines at hand quite like Becca does. <laughs> no, I it's because it's a terrible movie. Okay, it goes up there. We gotta push it. It's our job. There you go. All right. That's what so, I say before I preach, right? No, I don't. Well, I don't. Well, we were doing we were doing walk up music a few episodes back, Adam. Are you going to revise your walk up music to be Danger Zone now? Well, no, I was talking. I was in that episode. I was talking with Becca about walk up music. My, oh, my, my walk up music's going to be "Take My Breath Away" from here on out. <laughs> By Berlin. <laughs> uh, yeah. So so ego is a major part of this movie and. But it's ego and authority gained from skill, gained from some sort of masculine competition that happens. Even when they're in the bar, they're sort of competing about what woman they're going to take home. And then that translates into like a dog fight. And yet that ego is either on the one hand pushing against the rigid hierarchical structure of, say, the military, and on the other hand, sort of gained by being placed within that rigid hierarchical structure, right? It's only because the military has such like a, a force, a shaping force on people that the ego can sort of bloom. Yeah. So there's a, um, th- there's a book from back in my film scholar days. It's a, an, a film critic named Susan Jeffords writes a book called The Remasculinization of America, and she's looking at this period in Hollywood cinema. And I believe she's talking about Top Gun. I know she does like Die Hard and Rambo and a few other things. And what she's specifically talking about is the way that these kind of masculine figures emerge as America's kind of uh, uh, delayed and deferred response to grief and trauma from Vietnam. And 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 so that and I think you get that really explicitly in this film. And I think it's exactly where you are, Adam, that uh, the the military structure is a certain kind of masculine, but it's also bureaucratic and rule bound and it's traumatized by by Vietnam. And that and Maverick is obviously traumatized because he lost his father there. 
And so this idea of, um, of breaking rules and this idea of letting go, I think are very related where to fully reassert um, America's sense of um, almost manifest destiny there, but a certain sense of like just uh, potency uh, you have to uh, break out of these structures that have been confining and break out of these structures that we associate with the trauma of the war uh, and assert the kind of more natural um, masculinity that will um, that will let us move on. And when you see Maverick then throw the dog tags into the water at the end, I mean, he's grieving Goose, yeah, but I think this movie is really about him grieving his father. And I think in the big symbolic language, that father is related to um, is related to Vietnam and how to move on. So that's the that's yeah. the big cultural argument here, and I, I it it has a lot of traction for me. Again, I don't think it makes it a good movie, but it makes it an interesting movie. Well, I think you just gave it more heft than I did as far as what level what maneuvers of self awareness or even a meta narrative it attempts. But I, I you know that idea of you're flying against a ghost. Ghost right, rider. exactly. Yeah, 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 exactly. It's definitely saying that if somebody is flying against their past, there is something that can be redeemed if they can just get through that. And maybe we aren't as honest about how our guilt about whether it was over certain lines, viewed well by mainstream people, um, maybe that's really what's tripping us up rather than, you know, the actual grief itself. It's more like the complexities of how the grief happened. Yeah. And then the, the, you know, the other side of that for me is, is especially in kind of a 2016 political climate, I think this film answers collective and national trauma by saying, well, if only we could get rid of all of our political institutions and structures, we'd be fine. If we could just reassert our kind of basic masculine characteristic and we wouldn't have to ask permission for things or go to meetings or deal with our superiors <laughs> or obey rules or do any of the things that we associate with like some kind of functional collective society. If we would just, if Tom Cruise could just do his own thing and not worry about it, that would be great. And I, so uh, full disclosure, Kelly McGillis went to my high school Ew. and, uh, and there's something really interesting to me about her character, right? Because she's this sort of male hypermasculine fantasy as well which is uh, she plays hard to get for a total of one scene. And, <laughs> and, and then it's she, classified. It is classified. And she, then she gives him her number and home address and tells him to show up at a very specific time. It, uh, nothing changes except that Tom Cruise gets to tell her about how he encountered a MiG fighter jet. And this, for some reason, uh, gives her all the impetus she needs to just jump into bed with him, which is kind of crazy because at some point you have to imagine that if a woman in a highly hypermasculine or a hypermasculine, highly stratified system like the military has gotten to the point where she's teaching at a Top Gun uh, school or training course. She's kind of she's got to be pretty, pretty tough. Well, and think then, about it. her call sign is Charlie. I mean, she's not yeah. Charlotte Blackwood. She's Charlie, right? She's and, taller than and, him by a foot, <laughs> by a good foot, and 
And and so there's something very, I mean, as I watch this comic about Tom Cruise early in his career, he hasn't gotten his teeth fixed yet. Um, he's almost prepubescent. And just a year earlier, he was playing, uh, or two years earlier, he was playing a, a high school student in Risky Business. And suddenly now he's the paragon of this masculine hyper militarized world and um and i think that there's something to say about that for our culture and why that's so attractive as well which is it's not stallone and it's not schwarzenegger who are the two other major action figures at this point whose body types and looks are almost impossible but it's tom cruise who is shorter than most um but can get by on charm and um and courage and a thousand watt grin i mean and underpants like that's the what unites risky business with right gun <laughs> um and i wonder i mean we're talking about hyper masculinity it seems like the movie is saying a very 1980s type of thing that it's hard for us now 30 years later to access anymore the world has changed so we're we're hearing a worldview where if our boys are good looking and they're just playfully taunting each other, playing volleyball in their jeans. Um, th that's what boys do. And our enemies are faceless. They are in goggles. They are just the glove on a trigger that's always aimed at us. So there's this undercurrent of fear of the Russians that we may not understand, like, was so, like, 80s people would have. Um, so I, I think that it's, it in how it may not resonate too well now, reminds us of how much our concept of enemy, our concept of ourselves has dramatically changed. Well, I think we've done a, a, a good job chewing on Top Gun and its metaphors and its themes for right now. So let's move to preaching. Uh, the second segment of our show is called Preaching to the Choir, and we look at the lectionary passages. Today, we look at the lectionary passages for year C, July 10th, the eighth Sunday after Pentecost, Ordinary 15. So we have Amos, our favorite dresser of sycamore trees, and he has some choice words for Amaziah. There's a couple of interesting psalms, uh, a passage from Deuteronomy that's especially beautiful, uh, the beginning of Paul's letter to Colossae, and of course, the parable of the Good Samaritan. So, Becca, as you survey these passages, what's standing out to you as you think about the themes of Top Gun? Well, I mean, obviously the Good Samaritan story in Luke is one of the most important teaching moments of Jesus. And I think really the only direct connection is that the Jericho Road could be defined as highway to the danger zone. I mean, you really could make that connection. It's a, it's a dangerous road. It is lined with robbers. It's, it's famously problematic. Um, I just think about the, the style you have in the Good Samaritan story, Jesus, the instructor, trying to give a life lesson on the eternal questions. What really matters? How do we receive eternal life? And he gives answers that they already know. They know these answers. Uh, and so then he's challenged by a lawyer to unpack who one's neighbor really is. And then Jesus, rather than giving like a heady think piece or a treatise or a legal answer, 
he tells a story that is deliberately available to the masses and it and it deliberately messes with what most people value most people then value the law and codes and being on the right side of the road um and in this very accessible way, the story that has mass appeal, mass understanding, it can be passed down through the years, um, and then definitely has an overlay of his own life. Jesus shows all of that to be actually the opposite of what people hold dear, that loving our neighbor is really hard. It is dangerous. And yet those that we need the most may seem to us just as threatening and as faceless as the Samaritans, or in Top Gun, as, as those Russians in the MiG. So I think about Top Gun and, and how flight school was supposed to teach, you know, they called it the lost art of aerial combat dogfighting. But what it ends up teaching about is really the importance, and maybe this is giving you a little more credit than it's worth, but it's, it teaches the importance of coming together of even overcoming th your rivals, of overcoming ego and rank. And it's, it's made for mass market consumption. And then you have this moment of, of realizing that the tools in Top Gun that, pr that preserve peace are things like missiles and aircraft carriers uh, that take down these ballistic enemies. So I wonder if you could just, if you could invert, go inverted on the sermon and, and highlight that the real power of this movie, like the real driving force of the story is, has much more to do with their nonviolent actions in, in their discovery of their own fragility, in their broader understanding of, of whose team they're really on, um, but I mean, all that would have to have uh, a special caution that your sermon could go into a flat spin if you make this all about like the virtues of, of military or um, whether or not this is it, how we do just war, that kind of thing. You want right. to be careful there. So, Matt, as as you look at the lectionary passages, what's standing out to you and, and, and what has Top Gun shaped in your mind? Well, I think it's helping pull out a thread in a few of these passages for me, which is kind of about this tension between the life of faith and in, in, in the individual life of faith and the life of faith in, embedded in a community. Uh, it seems like there's, um, you know, on one hand, we have the uh, this Deuteronomy passage, uh, the surely this commandment that I'm commanding you today is not too hard for you, nor is it too far away. Uh, that's probably a second person plural, but it, it it can also be read pretty easily as as just you know the the subject's relationship to God and the relationship to the law perceived as individual compliance. But then I think we get in these New Testament passages some cutting against that. We get uh, certainly in Luke, which the 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 Good Samaritan story is a story about interrelationships. And and I think we get it as well in the in the Colossians story, where Paul is uh, very much in love with this community, but the way that he narrates their story for them is to help them remember um, upon whom else they are dependent, not just in this case, you know, 
to remind them of their thanks for God and Jesus Christ, but also in the seventh verse to remind them of of Ephesus, their, their, you know, his servant, the one who has been a faithful minister on their behalf to help kind of broaden their sense of who their community is and the relationships in which their faith has been formed. And, and I, I think I would, you know, I, as we've said already, I think Top Gun is a little bit trying to work with this question of whether or not Maverick is kind of in his own story or whether or not he is in some ways learning to cooperate and be dependent upon others. I, I think Becca probably gives the film a little bit more credit than I would in terms of him overcoming his individuality and learning to play in a team. And we get this moment of reconciliation with ice on the aircraft carrier at the end, but I don't entirely buy it. And you part can of the be reason my wingman anytime. <laughs> right. I mean, I, I, it's fine, but it doesn't feel like the overall arc of the story for me. It feels like the overall arc of the story is Mav versus his own personal demons. But I, I and, and I think what you remember and what seems more memorable about this story is is just the deep clash of ego that comes through it. And so I think if I were going to try to put these things together, that's probably where I would be is, is trying to um, get at some of the the... Where is the theology of community in this film? And I'm not entirely convinced that it's there. Uh, one interesting contrast would be just to point out that uh, this movie comes out in May of 1986. In December of 1986, Platoon comes out. Right. So we have two very, very different takes on the American military story. And they're, ta- they're different for a lot of reasons. But one of them is that the way that Top Gun um, brings this story back is to bring it back in the story of these um, lone individualist pilots, because the story of people um, working in, in communities in platoons and working on the ground together is a much more difficult one to tell uh, in 1986 in the wake of, of national trauma. Yeah. And there is going to be a Top Gun two coming out. They've uh, Tom Cruise and Bruckheimer have been public about that. So it'll be interesting yeah. to see how that how how has Tom Cruise aged? Is his story a lot like the the way that we experience this film? You know, somebody who was so vibrant and youthful and hmm. fresh, and now has he's got some cultural baggage to say the least. Yeah, I actually kind of prefer late career Tom Cruise, but um, I not across the board. But I I love the Mission Impossible series, and I love some of the latter stuff that he's done. I think Magnolia is the best work he's done. I yeah, no, I, interesting... I I prefer that middle that middle cruise, okay. you know, where uh, where he spends you know ten years with Stanley Kubrick, <laughs> just just doing weird things to him. Yeah, um, and then realize, um, yeah, and, yeah, and so Kubrick, I think Kubrick breaks him down and makes him a better actor for about eight years, and then he's like, oh man. Can I just go back to doing action movies? Uh, but I so as we think about the luxury passages, I think Matt, you're pulling out this this central tension that is present within our own American psyches, but also present within the movie, which is um, we get to affirm the highly organized and formidable p- portrait of the military, right? So film throughout our history loves to talk about how the American military is the best, not just because it's the smartest, but it's because it's the most organized, the most disciplined, that it has um, a system 
that can enter in or that can that can receive any number of different personalities and make them fit into something that is more than the sum of its parts. We also in the American uh world love the rugged individualist who gets to play by his own rules. Uh and so I see this dichotomy in the church too a, a lot, which is the church can be this extremely highly stratified place that doesn't actually make room for those who don't play by the rules. Um, and, and I don't think that the military in actuality would ever have a place for someone like Maverick. I was doing a little research online because I don't know what a hard deck is. And there's a moment where this becomes an important point of the plot. And so I went and looked it up and there was some old grizzled military guy saying the hard deck is a sort of artificial floor that planes can't go under because if they go under, they'll endanger citizens on the ground or you endanger knew themselves. It. You took it and broke a major rule of engagement. Right, right. So, uh, and this this commenter on the internet, so take it for what it's worth, uh, says, you know, in, if if this happened in a real top gun school, he'd just be kicked out because it's a really important rule. And the military takes its rules very seriously. Uh, and so Top Gun gets to, you know, have its cake and eat it too, because it gets to hold these two things together as if they're compatible. And they're not really compatible. Uh, and I was thinking about this too while I was reading the Amos passage, where Amaziah basically says to Amos, like, go do your profit shtick somewhere else. Uh, go, you know, ply your trade in another place. Because we don't have any place for you here. Uh, and so Amaziah instills all sorts of motives in Amos besides the most noble, in part because he can't imagine why someone would espouse some sort of religious faith or practice outside the temple system. Uh, so he has he can make no room for the individual. Meanwhile, Amos can't like function in a stratified place. Like, he can only hang out with sycamore trees. It seems... Uh, and so I see this this tension to be really central in a lot of our churches as well, which is, like, how do we make room for someone like Amos and Maverick? And how do we also try and build policy and, um, and live into something that is perhaps more rigid than we'd like it to be? Yeah, well, I, t- I totally see that strain, Adam, um, where... Like it or not, Maverick has a lot of our same tendencies where there's our ego that is very self-serving, willing to break the rules, reckless, dealing with issues from the past. Then there's times when our ego goes against the rules for the sake of the compassionate right thing to do. Like when he bucks the rules and he goes after a cougar and brings him in on his wing and then gets reamed out, you know, that you don't own that plane, the taxpayers do, should have landed that plane. And then there's times where, you know, he's really, he's punished by sticking with his wingman. And that's what causes that flat spin when, when Goose passes away. I think that we all have that, uh, that tendency to go out on a limb um, to do what's right. And it's risky. And that's in the Good Samaritan passage too. But there's also times when we're bucking against institutions just for the sake of our own name. So I think 
we've pretty much landed that plane. Uh, I want to thank Becca for being our guest today, for coming in uh, and schooling us on all things Top Gun, for showing us that perhaps uh, Tony Scott, Jerry Bruckheimer, and Tom Cruise uh, had more up their sleeve than uh, than we actually imagined. Becca, thanks for being here. We appreciate it. It was really fun. Thanks, y'all. Yeah, thanks. We appreciate it. Matt, now it's time for our last segment. This is called Postludes, and it's just a chance to get another little preacher thought from each of us on something else we're watching or following or participating in. So, Matt, what's your postlude for the week? So uh, I'm going to jump squarely on a bandwagon that I've actually been on for a long time now, which is the Hamilton bandwagon. This is Lin-Manuel Miranda's uh uh, hip-hop musical about the life of alexander hamilton though honestly if you're listening to this podcast i'm pretty sure you know that already uh i fell on the hamilton bandwagon first when the cast album dropped and when it first dropped my wife and i looked at our schedules for this summer and figured out that we could uh buy tickets then at face value, which we did. So the exciting part about this moment in time is that this podcast drops on Monday and Tuesday a week from now, I will be going to Hamilton on Broadway. Beautiful. I'm very excited for the face value tickets that we purchased. What, what that now means is that we are going to see Hamilton on the second performance after Lin-Manuel Miranda is leaving the show. Wow. <laughs> wow. Because since we bought the tickets, and very recently, in fact, it came out that the contracts for many of the original players expire on July 9th, and our tickets are for July 12th. So Lin-Manuel is not continuing with the show uh, after the Saturday performance. We get there on Tuesday. And then uh, even more recently, it was announced that uh, Leslie Odom Jr., who plays Aaron Burr in the show and just won a Tony for it, is also not continuing after July 9th. And Philippa Sue, who plays Eliza Hamilton, is also not continuing when her contract expires, although it may be later in July. I'm not sure on that one yet. Oh, I don't, I'm sorry to laugh, Matt. No, no, no. I'm it's, sorry it's, to laugh. It's hilarious and painful. And, and between when we're recording this and when it drops, who knows how many other of the main cast will, will also leave since all their contracts are up. Like, and I have been hoping that the show would not want to deal with the PR of having everybody leave at the same time. Though, honestly, like they can take a lot of PR hit and still be Hamilton. So what are they going to do? And I just don't know if anyone's going to be there when we get there. So I've been thinking about this and trying to figure it out partially because, honestly, we could just go on the internet right now and sell the tickets that we bought for face value for like 10 times what we paid for them. If the point of the show were to go and see Lin-Manuel do his thing, that would seem like the obvious course of action. But I find myself not caring as much as I thought I would. And the more I think about it, it's the, the more it is because I, I, I'm only kind of partially going to see the personalities on the stage. And a lot of me is going to be in the room with all the people who want to go see the show. Uh, and mm. to be in the room with what feels like a kind of worshiping community. Uh, the the room where it happens? The, it could be the room where it happens like eight times a week. But yeah, sure. Uh, and so I've been thinking about that act of going there is is kind of... Why do we go to worship? Right. Uh, you know, the uh, famously Redeemer Church in New York, where Tim Keller was pastor, has this 
policy where they don't announce which services he's going to preach at on Sunday morning so that you have to go to church without knowing whether or not you're going to see the celebrity preach or you're going to see the third junior associate that nobody knows. Uh, and and I, in some ways, I think that's kind of, it, it, it betrays a lot of ego in the congregation among the staff. But it also, I think, is kind of beautiful because it means that we're not showing up to this thing just because of who the personalities are. We're showing up because we're trying to be part of a community that is in a kind of act of corporate worship together. So that's what I'm holding myself to as I go to be with all these people who are going to be part of this experience of seeing the show and the experience of being there with each other, kind of regardless of what um, uh, random guest stars end up playing the parts that I know and love. I'm kind of also hoping that maybe they just won't find anybody for Aaron Burr and I can get up and do it because I could totally pull that off, Adam. Okay, so today, um, for me, I, I want to talk about OJ Made in America, which is the ESPN documentary that is in five parts, about eight hours long. Uh, it's some of the best long-form filmmaking since probably Lonsman Shoah. Uh, it is. Uh, it makes Ken Burns uh, look terrible it is so good and um and dense and rich and interesting uh that i I recommend it to anybody who has eight hours to spare um anyway i i think as i've watched this that the title oj made in america should actually be called oj made in los angeles because god here we go again yes i know here we go so, because it's a quint- it's quintessentially a, a Los Angeles story, because Los Angeles stories are about fame and dreams and difference in close proximity, and the ecstatic mixed with the apocalyptic. It's like one part true believer, one part snake oil salesman, and you know, yes, Matt, my love for Los Angeles is well documented on this podcast. Uh, but I think when I see OJ's story as an LA story, it positions me to compare and contrast it with other LA stories and to gather new insight both into Ezra Edelman's already comprehensive work in this documentary, but also these other really interesting Los Angeles stories that have uh, something to teach us. So in 1769, a Spanish priest colonized an Indian village and he called it Nuestra Señora La Reina de Los Angeles. And almost immediately it began to attract weirdos. And diversity, so that the first colony, the the first colony in Los Angeles was the were these twelve families of forty six people that arrived from Mexico, and the group was really diverse. Some were of African heritage, some were of Spanish heritage, some were mestizo, and some were indigenous Mexicans. Uh, and so the history of Los Angeles is, from the very beginning, this history of difference trying to live together in close proximity. And so Los Angeles then becomes a place that attracts all of these dreamers no matter what their um what their heritage so we have disneyland we have forest lawn we have amy simple mcpherson's angelus temple which is also known as the dream center and then of course there's the azusa street revival and so as as i was watching this oj documentary I couldn't help but see the swirling world of race, consumption, and the commodification of our lifestyles as central to the L.A. world. And so now I can't watch 
OJ without seeing Richard Seymour or Amy Simple McPherson or even someone like D.W. Griffith, who uh, shot the climactic scene of Birth of a Nation on Forest Lawn in Los Angeles. Then again, I can't watch OJ score touchdowns for USC and not also be reminded of USC's second president in 1850, a guy named Joseph Whitney, who claimed that Los Angeles would be the future world capital of Aryan supremacy. And so as I've been thinking about Los Angeles, its history, and especially as it pertains to OJ's story of race, sport, fame, it led me to think more intentionally about how all of our cities are themselves characters in our preaching. Uh, and I keep wondering now, like, what grows in your soil? What does it look like? What what climate is your city? Because the scripts we play out in our particular places are born of uh, of these cities and their histories. And sometimes we're able to alter the script. But we have to have a script to alter to begin with. So I would commend people to think uh, more intentionally about the histories of their cities and how that is playing into the sort of daily lives of the people who live there. That's what I got, Matt. Thanks, Adam. I'm looking forward to your next pick, which will actually just be LA Story with Steve Martin. <laughs> I think that'll be one more mid-80s uh, piece of nostalgia for no, our Roxanne with Steve Martin. But I think that should about wrap it up for this episode, Adam. But we are not quite done yet. Next week, we have another special guest joining us. Laurel Kopf-Taylor is a professor of Hebrew Bible at Eden Theological Seminary. And again, by the magic of nonlinear editing, here she is to tell us about herself and her pick for our next conversation. Hi, this is Laurel Kopf-Taylor. Join us next week when we'll be talking about the movie musical Annie. We look forward to spending time with Laurel next week. But for now, this wraps up our time together. Thanks for listening. Don't forget to subscribe to the show on iTunes. If you like it, leave us a rating, leave us a review, tell a friend. Every little bit helps other people find this show. Thanks, Matt. Thanks, Adam. Yeah, I can